Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. We are continuing our walk through this season of Eureka, the season of Epiphany. And our gospel opens up and tells us that Jesus has relocated from Nazareth to the north of Israel, to a town of Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, this is striking because this territory had not been called Zebulun and Naphtali uh, for about 700 years. It would be like someone saying Jesus settled along Gramercy Creek in uh, New Amsterdam today. You'd be like, wait, New York? Is that what we're talking about? You know? Um, Matthew, though, he does this for a very particular reason. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah uh, because he wants his readers to understand that everything that Jesus is doing is not random chance. It's not like, oh, hey, the real estate market's awesome in the north, you know, let's move up there, um, uh, you know, and check that out. It's uh, no. Rather, Jesus is the Messiah. And as the Messiah, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy in everything that he's doing. At the time of Isaiah's prophecy, uh, Israel was divided. You, had, you remember the 12 tribes? Well, 10 of the tribes became the northern kingdom, what later became known as Samaria. And then two tribes, this was Benjamin and Judah, became the kingdom of uh, Judea, the southern kingdom. And uh, at the time, uh, there was a ruling in the southern kingdom was a king by the name of King Ahaz. And he was a little anxious, like all of us, and, uh, but he was really anxious because the king of uh, Aran, which is today Syria, and uh, the king of Israel had uh, formed an alliance and were planning to invade. And Isaiah, if you read uh, the previous chapters of our reading, chapter 7 and 8, he uh, comes to King Ahaz and he's like, listen, put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. God will take care of you. And Ahaz is like, of course, of course. And uh, what does he do? He immediately signs an alliance with uh, my favorite Assyrian king. We all have them. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser III. And, um, and uh, I love that name. If I ever made a beer, it would be called Tiglath-Pilsner. And uh, so, but uh, um, uh, what, what happened was is that he made this alliance. And so, uh, and then uh, as a result, um, Judah became a, like basically a vassal state of uh, Assyria, not quite conquered, and uh, Tiglath-Pileser extorted the heck out of King Ahaz. I mean, just basically put his knee right on his throat. And, um, and, uh, but what happened was is that Judea, uh, Israel in the north, uh, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, were the first tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel to be sacked and destroyed by the armies of Syria. And this all happened 700 years before Jesus. And as the destruction was befalling them, uh, and think about it, those, the, the destruction that befell them, those who sat in great darkness, it's not like the lights are out in your bathroom. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the smoke that comes from having your house burned to the ground. You know, uh, the smoke that comes from war and pillage. Uh, think the eastern parts of Ukraine right now. That's what we're talking about, darkness. 
And the northern kingdom never recovered from this moment on in Old Testament history, really, after this sacking. After the Assyrians came the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, well, Alexander the Great and his Greek army marched right in, and they rather liked the place. You know, it was a wonderful place, so they set up shop there, and they brought their pagan customs with them and settled, and then pretty soon there's this intermingling between, uh, you know, uh, Jew and Gentile up there, and if you go there, if you go to like Caesarea Philippi, you will see carved into the side of the rocks like all of these arches that housed all of these various different gods. And this was because um, this wonderful place in northern Israel, in the, 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 the breadbasket of monotheism, well, their, their, their uh, patron god had become Pan, the god of everything. This place was just insane. And so uh, their pagan customs come in, and they intermarried with the Jewish people there and uh, the Greeks, and then pretty soon the armies of Rome came. And there are even writings from Roman soldiers uh, who loved the northern part of Israel because it was the one place in this crazy land of monotheism that reminded them of their homeland. And so by the time of Jesus' day, Naphtali and Zebulon had become known as Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. This is a pejorative, you know. This isn't a, like a nice, like a wonderful biblical title. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. And they sat in darkness, not because now any longer because of war, but they had sat in darkness because they had embraced paganism. They sat in darkness because they had become blind by their idolatry. Now think about this just for five seconds. Think about it for five seconds. If you were trying to begin a movement a religious movement, and the religious movements of Jesus' day were based on two things, ethnic purity and religious piety. So if you're thinking about beginning a religious movement, <laughs> Galilee of the Gentiles is the last place you're going to go. I mean, you're going to go to Judea, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go to the best seminary there, you know? You're going to go to the best seminary, Trinity School for Ministry. That's where I went, you know. You're not going to go to Union up north. And so anyway, you know, and so this is, this is the thing. If you were trying to start a movement, this is the last place you'd go. And so this is my first point. Jesus moves north. And him moving north and settling in Galilee uh, gives us an epiphany. Not only an epiphany that uh, Jesus is fulfilling scripture, but he's giving us an epiphany into how God actually works. That Jesus has not come for just the well-behaved Jew, but the irreligious, uncircumcised Gentile like myself. Jesus moving north reminds us that God works by grace and not by merit and deserving. That Jesus' mission, and this is here how it hits you existentially, Jesus' mission is not simply for the parts of your life that are salvageable and seem to be in order, but Jesus' mission is for those places in your life that, are, that appear to you to be covered in darkness, that appear to you to be the places you would never, ever want to look. Uh, this is where light is actually shining. 
And with the eyes of faith, you begin to see it. The parts of your life that feel like a complete burned over mess. That's where God's at work. So Jesus begins his ministry, and he begins his ministry like the same way John the Baptist began his ministry, but as we've read, he's been, the Baptist has been silenced. And so Jesus now begins his ministry, and he begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Now let me explain this to you, what's going on here. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament was always understood as a present reality, However, it was never really attained with them. There might have been about five chapters in the beginning of uh, uh, First Kings with or uh, First, King, yeah, First Kings with David. But after that, it's like, nope, that's not it. The f- repent the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament was always understood as a present reality, not something that had to be ushered in with our help and partnership. And a lot of people today are always talking about like partnering with God and ushering in the kingdom of God and his dream, whatever that is. This is like, no, this is a present reality that is coming to you because God is the protagonist in your relationship. The kingdom of God was where God's people were in God's place under God's reign. And so this is manifesting itself in not a bunch of people, but in one person fulfilling the prophet Isaiah, out of the stump of Jesse shall come a shoot. So here it is, not a bunch of branches, but a shoot. One person and he is coming to you. And in Matthew's gospel, uh, what this means to repent, well, what it meant to them, it means the same to you. It means to turn from the trust in self. And notice all of our messages today are about self, finding the power within, the strength within. Walk a labyrinth and find the power. Listen, never walk a labyrinth. The only thing at the center of a labyrinth is a minotaur and David Bowie and, uh, you know, the, the warlock king. And so run the other way. It's not a, like a progression in. The gospel, repent for the kingdom of God, pulls you up outside of yourself pulls you up outside of yourself to where, as the psalmist says, your help is to be found. And your help is to be found in the God who says, I forgive you. The God who says, I am for you and I will never leave you or forsake you. To turn from your self-justification projects to Christ's work and being justified by him alone in God. That's the good news of the gospel. The kingdom is not something abstract in the past. Rather, the kingdom is in our midst right now. And it's in the midst of you right now. It's in the midst through this word that doesn't give you 12 steps to improve yourself, but says you're forgiven. It's in the midst of you right now when it comes to you in bread that is his body and wine that is his blood. The Holy Spirit moves through these means right now and comes to us in the same way and it delivers the same call that was given to Andrew, Peter, James, and John. This same call comes to you right now and says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. What in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it comes in two parts. 
To fish for people means to be one who is known by God and is actually genuinely concerned about the cares and needs of others. I mean, so often we approach people as projects, don't we? People we need to fix. I remember I was about to do a wedding one time and these people wanted to play the song from Coldplay, I Will Try and Fix You. I was like, man, you don't do that. <laughs> this marriage won't last long. And so, you know, I mean, just think about it. Every time someone's trying to fix you, you want to run the other way. You want to be intentional. Count me out. You know? <laughs> you know, when we approach people from projects, they sense it. In the church, it oftentimes manifests itself in all sorts of various types of ministries. That's like, how do we get those people over there in here? You know? How do I make Jesus a little bit more relevant and hip? And this sort of fishing for people always comes across a little, uh, a little shallow and empty when the rubber hits the road. Because it's ultimately, like I talked about last week, it thrusts the emphasis right on you as opposed to placing it back on Jesus. And so this is my second point, and I want to say this and make it perfectly clear, and this is the first part, to be a fisher of people. To be a fisher of people simply means to know who you are. A person on your knees. A person in need. This is why the message is repent for the kingdom of God is near because repentance changes absolutely everything. It takes me off my stool. Repentance pulls me up outside of my navel gazing to be genuinely and honestly interested in others and through genuine relationships of love defined by grace introduce others to the same Jesus. And sometimes this takes a lot longer because it's genuine, it's not coerced. I mean, I'm watching it in my very eyes right now in a relationship that I'm in with a, with a person who's become a friend and this is, taking, this is taking time, but I'm watching God literally move and woo this family to the gospel. But it introduces others to the same Jesus who by the power of his word and Holy Spirit has cleansed us with baptism and continues to assure us of our salvation in communion and through the word. This is the net of God's redeeming grace that goes forward and it makes us fishers of men. And let me say while not all of you are called to drop your nets and change your vocation and become clergy. All of you have a call to make disciples and share the good news of the gospel with your neighbors. So, to be a fisher of people means you have a genuine heart for people and a genuine heart of love for them to know the saving message of the gospel. However, the other component, this is the second part that comes, and this is probably the most important that defines everything, is to understand yourself actually as a fish. You're a fish. When I was at the Sea of Galilee, I never understood this, but when I was at the Sea of Galilee, before I went there, I always thought it was like with a rod and a reel, you know, the way my grandpa taught me to fish. And that is not the case. 
Uh, the way they fished in the Sea of Galilee was they threw these nets out. They did net fishing and the net sinks to the bottom and then they pull it up. They pull it up and they catch all the fish in the net. Now another fun fact that I learned at the Sea of Galilee is this. The fish in the Sea of Galilee, I'm not sure if this is true with every fish, but the fish in the Sea of Galilee, they can see in front of them, they can see above them, and they can see behind them. But guess where the blind spot is? The bottom. The bottom is their blind spot. They never see it coming. And this is how the gospel, this is how God's grace works. It works like these fishing nets. You never see it coming. As St. Paul said in our reading from the Corinthians today, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's no net here, you know. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The gospel never comes in great displays of power like fireworks. It comes to you humbly. It comes to you lowly so that it can speak to those parts of your life first. It comes to you before we even know that we're caught in it. It comes below you in ways you'd least expect it. Think about it. A baby in a manger. (laughs) Really, that's your God? The carpenter of Nazareth. (laughs) Really, that's your God? Nazareth, what good could possibly come out of Nazareth? Comes to us from a rabbi in Galilee of the Gentiles. He got his disciples from where? And it continues to come to you, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit. Water on your head and now bread and wine in your mouth. What an epiphany. This is why it's called an epiphany. Because we're... We're looking for God. We're looking for love in all the wrong places most of the time. And this is my third point. And hear me. You, you are a fisher of people. And you are also, and probably most importantly, a fish. You're a fish caught in the net of God's grace and salvation. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're here. (laughs) Caught in that net of God's grace and salvation in order to truly live. That's why you're caught in it. Not to have God be a burden, but in order for you to truly, truly live and share this good news with others. This net that's caught you is called the gospel. And it's cast far and wide to save you from your sin and to save you from death in order to bring you to the shore of eternal life on that glorious last day. So as you come forward, by the power of the Holy Spirit, hear the words of Jesus to you today. Follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorges.org give. Thank you for your support.